Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Together, we'll be talking about the challenges and lessons learned during our Lenten fasts, why physical fasting doesn't always lead to spiritual feasting, and how seeing Jesus as prophet, priest, and king enriches your understanding of his work of redemption. Back in episode 5, Cameron and I talked about fasting and feasting, and what each of us planned to give up for Lent this year. As we approach Holy Week and the end of Lent, I thought it would be a good time to review our progress and see if there were any lessons learned. So Cameron, at the beginning of Lent, we talked about what we were giving up for Lent, what uh, fasts, what spiritual disciplines we were going to adopt for this period. And now as Lent is drawing to a close, I thought it would be a good idea to check back in and see how it was going. So first of all, why don't we remind people what our different uh, Lenten fasts involved. So what did you give up for Lent? Sure. Yep. So I gave up social media and alcohol. Okay. So social media and alcohol were yours. And then for me, I gave up, let's call it news consumption. And I did a little other thing where I put something in its place, right? which was these daily readings from the church fathers. And if you go back a few episodes when we talked about Lent, uh, there's a link there where you can find these readings. So, so that's what we did. And I thought it'd be fun to just kind of talk about, you know, how it's going and that sort of thing. So, yeah. so first of all, I think the questions I, I want to hit, I want to first of all talk about what the challenges were and then any lessons that we learned along the way. And then at the end, maybe some insights for spiritual discipline or discipleship in general. So did you run into any challenges with your Lenten fast? Yeah, I did. So the, the first one was regarding social media. I discovered that I was logged in to my account in several places uh -huh. <laughs> and on several, several different devices. So while I had logged out on my phone, you know, the first day, the next day it was, oh, I'm still logged on in these different places. So it took me a while logistically right. to like totally unplug. And that sounds silly, but that was kind of a, a practical challenge. Um, something that I probably should have thought about a little bit more just up front. Sure, sure. Now, you had mentioned too that you were giving up social media for yourself, but because of work commitments, you still had to do it work-related. Was that ever a challenge, kind of that you could do the work-related stuff, but not the personal? It was a little bit, yeah, because I would find myself scrolling even though it's on a work account. And and it's just habit, I think. Right. So you log on to some app and, and you're just scrolling and I'm realizing that I'm reading things that I don't even really care about, but it's mm -hmm. just kind of a, a bad habit. So yeah, that was a challenge. Thankfully, actually in the past few weeks though, I was able to pass most of my work responsibilities onto a, onto a colleague that responsibility kind of shifted. So I didn't have to do the work related stuff very much for the last couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Well, great. I'm glad that that worked out. I, I had similar 
uh, difficulties up front. And even when we talked last time, I was acknowledging that my efforts to give up the news had not been entirely successful. And and I did have a number of instances where I would, you know, open up a news app or I would be, you know, watching a video or, you know, many different contexts. And I would suddenly think, wait a second, this is this is news or this is like news. I'm not supposed to be doing this. Or I would get a notification, you know, on, on my phone with some breaking news and and think, well, I, I should probably at least click on this, you know, and see what's going on. And so there were a few kind of uh, false starts there where I really um, struggled in a similar way to you in the sense that it was uh, almost, you know, habitual, you know, stopping yourself from doing something that you're not really doing consciously can be a challenge. And so that was definitely, (laughs) you know, just catching myself again and again. Would you say that that's part of the point, though? I think so. Yeah. Of the fast is to, is yeah. to kind of, I don't know, interrupt those habits. That's a good point. It, it's, I, I wonder if this happened for you, because for me, it certainly made me more aware of like how much news I was consuming. And if I had, you know, drawn a chart at the beginning and, you know, colored in, X percentage of the circle, which is how much time I spend on this stuff. Now I would go back and say, oh, it was much more mm-hmm. than I realized. And, and, and the news is a little bit insidious in the, in the sense that it comes in so many different forms. You know, there's uh, email lists and, and podcasts and, uh, you know, apps, news sites, radio. radio yeah. And, and, and then, of course, people. Yeah. You know, and so even though I was giving up the news and, you know, got into a a pretty good, you know, habit of of not checking up on things, it was very interesting to to realize like some stories you cannot not know about, even if you're intentionally avoiding it all. So I, I was making a list of things that I know are happening over the course of Lent that even though... I was intentionally avoiding them. So it's like, I know about Oprah's interview with the Royal couple, you know, the Mexit thing. And then I know about the Atlanta shooting, of course, and Beth Moore leaving the Southern Baptist convention, uh, CDC updates, changing this thing and that thing. And, and I, I guess in a way that's, it just goes to show that you don't need to follow this stuff in order to be, kept up to date on what everybody is obsessing over. Yeah. So looking back, are you still glad that you tried to go without or would you have chosen something else? I think once, once I got over the initial, uh, just sort of like the consciousness of the habits, it was liberating. And I mean, the dilemma for me is, do I ever want to go back? You know, and and so that's that'll be an interesting thing to to unpack, because in in my case, I could see like never going back to the old relationship with the news, especially since so many of the most relevant stories get to you anyway. I wouldn't call them relevant, (laughs) but but yeah, some of them, maybe the things people are talking about do do trickle down. But it's a little bit like um, 
you know, people will talk about uh, if you start tracking what you eat, it's surprising. You know, you didn't realize you know, uh-huh. how many calories you consume in a day and you get a tracking app and you start logging everything. And now you're conscious of something and, and consciousness is the first step in being able to do something about it. Right. And so I think for me, this is kind of the wake up call, like really how much useful time was going into something that, that really isn't of much value. And, and honestly, I don't think that's what fasting is about first and foremost. It's not, um, it's not about sort of streamlining your life. You know, it's, there's something more to spiritual discipline than just realizing you're wasting your time and you could use it more effectively, but it is a, let's say a side benefit, you know, if, if nothing else. Um, so those are the challenges, but on the positive side, let's talk about lessons learned. So in, in your Lenten period of, of deprivation, do you feel like there are any lessons that, 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 seem new or fresh? I think the main lesson that I'm actually taking away is that spiritual feasting isn't necessarily instantaneous. Hmm. Um, So the lesson is that you have to wait upon the Lord. The last few weeks have actually been kind of a challenge spiritually or not uh, not as nourishing as I was hoping them to be because we had talked so much up front about, so you're giving this physical thing a rest so you can feast spiritually. And while I agree that's the goal, I realized over the last couple of weeks that it's not always easy. (laughs) And it's not automatic. Right. You know, because you weren't reading the Church Fathers, so (laughs) you didn't have the positive. But, you know, it's, it's worth remembering that when Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days, uh, when he fasted during that period, he didn't experience what we would call spiritual feasting. He experienced temptation. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have this sort of, I don't know, romantic idea that, that if we left our materialist everyday life behind and went out into the wilderness on our own and just kind of, you know, quieted down and, and just there we are in the presence of God, that we would achieve, you know, a spiritual insight but that's not necessarily what wilderness time looks like in scripture. I mean, Jesus' temptation, I think of Elijah and, and his kind of foray into the wilderness. And these are often more intense periods of testing. But this does connect to a lesson I feel like I've learned. And it is connected to the positive side of my fast, which was replacing the the news gap, filling it with the church fathers' readings, because one of those readings was Athanasius's uh, Life of Anthony, his biography of Anthony. And Anthony was, so this is in the 300s AD, and Anthony is probably the first like famous monk. So uh, if you're not familiar with kind of the, the history of, of how monasticism arose, when Christianity became legalized in the Roman Empire, there's this sudden influx of new converts. It's not persecuted. And once the emperor is a Christian, a lot of people feel like it's socially advantageous to become Christians. And so the church 
begins to grow. And inevitably, there are people that worry that with all of these new Christians, something is being lost, that the faith is being watered down. And so increasingly, you see people going off into the wilderness, into the desert to live a more sort of committed, hardcore Christian life, not take it easy on themselves. And so Anthony is one of these who uh, he has a sister, but he tucks her away in a in a nunnery. And then he goes off to the desert and and through his life is is actually like he starts in the desert, but then there's too many monks in the desert. And so he goes to the inner desert where it's even more remote to this little mountain where he hangs out. And and uh, so as I'm, you know, struggling with my not wanting to check my news app, you know, I'm reading about Anthony, who is, you know, battling spiritually day after day and and is not at all experiencing some sort of Zen-like, you know, I went out into nature and, and everything was peaceful. Like, like he's really in conflict constantly. And there's this refrain that Athanasius puts in there when he describes like these periods in Anthony's life. And Anthony will, he'll do something or he'll, you know, make a journey and, and go denounce the Arians or whatever it is. And then he returns to the inner desert and he renews his discipline. And so where I think we're oriented towards happiness, towards uh, benefits, let's say, here's a guy who is heralded as a hero of the Christian faith at that time, but his entire pattern of living is about like discipline that leads to greater discipline. You know, so he's like a guy who decided, you know, for 40 days, I'm not going to check the news. And then afterwards was like, now I'm not going to check the news and I'm going to get rid of my phone and I'm going to go to the desert and I'm just going to pray all the time. You know, that, that there's a, there's a way that like discipline feeds discipline and spiritual discipline that seems impossible in the abstract once you begin a little way, you find, you know, the spirit gives you a little more ability to endure. A little, a little, there's a little more you could give up and, and replace. That's interesting because it, it lets us think about Lent as more than just a, a season, though it is just a season um, on, the, on the church calendar the effects of Lent and the things that we're giving up could have a snowball effect kind of what is what you're saying. So that like you mentioned, maybe you'll just give up the news or maybe something more. Is that kind of the idea? I think so. Yeah. I mean, something about fasting makes you conscious of how much you've been consuming. And then you begin to ask yourself if you want to just return to the norm uh, and that's why I say, I, like, I don't necessarily think the whole point of fasting is just to, like, never end the fast. I think there's a value in giving things up for a season and then returning to them and enjoying them, you know, so that, that you break that fast and it's a time of rejoicing and celebration. But I do think sometimes you discover that the things that you have denied yourself are things that you don't need. And are things that 
you could like you could use that time better. And so that's why I think, you know, from a lessons learned standpoint, for me, a big lesson this year is how much more meaningful it was to me to have a positive discipline to focus on as I was working on what you might think of as like a negative discipline. So as I'm, I'm working on self-denial, I'm also working on adding something. And, and that's, you know, it, it, it's how that worked. You know, when I would feel that urge to check the news and see what was going on, instead of doing that, I would open up my PDF of church father's readings <laughs> and, and what I realized, and this is, this is to me mind boggling was I just didn't have enough church fathers to take up the same amount of time as the news was taking up. If, if I had literally read as much in the church fathers as I had been like skimming pointless news stories I think I would have worked through the whole, you know, 20 volume set. Yeah. It's just, you know, out of all proportion. And so that was a big eye opener for me. And and I think one of the things I'll take forward is, is in suggesting fasting. I think I also want to couple it with some kind of a positive discipline that can can help be the focus so that you're not just focused on what I don't want to do, what I need to avoid, the habit I want to break or whatever, but also where to channel that into. I mean, the classic example would be prayer, that I'm fasting and that urge to satisfy physical needs will be channeled into prayer. And I, I realize listening to this, you may think that sounds literally impossible, but, but that's the lesson you learn through these little deprivations is that it's much more possible than you think. Yeah. I didn't add on any additional spiritual disciplines and I, I kind of wish I, I would have. However, I kept to my normal spiritual disciplines of, of reading scripture and praying mm-hmm. throughout the day and did those, even though I sensed a little bit more of a disturbance in myself, so to speak. But I also found in the last few weeks that I was more creative than I had been before that. And I was wondering before this, if there was a connection, because a lot of the time I'll just go to my social media and it'll eat up my attention. And instead I, over the last few weeks, I was writing poems. I was working on music I was collaborating with some of my friends on on other projects and and I think that that was really good and it was really healthy and it was made possible by clearing out some of the debris of the the endless doom scroll. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a great observation. It reminds me of like the early days of blogging when um the advice I know a lot of writers like myself gave and received was don't waste a lot of time on blogging because that's going to scratch the itch. You should be writing books, you know, don't just make these daily posts or whatever, you know, save all that energy and focus on creative work. And ironically now, I think you hear people talk nostalgically about sort of the intellectual integrity and rigor and the depth of blogging. 
compared to tweets and stuff like that. So that there are people who like they have this dream of getting back to the depth of blogs mm -hmm. <laughs> and I completely sympathize. You know, I, I'm a person who feels like I was smarter before the internet took over our lives. My memory is worse and, and I feel like I, I read differently and all of those things. And so it is whenever there's a news article in my app about our declining attention spans and our need to unplug, I always read it and, and often bookmark it or share it because <laughs> it really resonates. <laughs> but hopefully those days are over. <laughs> exactly. Or at least it can be kept to a reasonable bandwidth. Right. <laughs> One of the contributions of John Calvin to our understanding of the faith was his development of the idea of Christ's threefold office. In a nutshell, this is the idea that Christ fulfills the offices of prophet, priest, and king as the ultimate expression of each one. Since our sermon series on Zechariah has been focusing on the revelation that the promised priest and the promised king would be the same person, we think this is a good time to dig into this helpful doctrine. As we've been Looking at the prophecies of Zechariah, we finished the night visions, and now we're looking at what comes afterwards. And the first thing that comes afterwards in Zechariah 6 is this incredible coronation scene where the high priest, Joshua, is crowned. And in the introductory sermon to this series, we talked about how strange that is, that a priest would sit on the throne and it almost seems, Cameron, as if God here is violating the separation of church and states. And yet there is something really important happening here in terms of, let's say, redemptive history and, and kind of our, our growing understanding of who the Messiah is. Do you think you have a clear sense of, of what's new here in the post-exilic prophets? I guess it seems like the roles which were before earlier on in history more distinct are being combined kind of like you you just said and it seems to be anticipating some figure who's going to take on lots of different roles and do lots of different things but is one character zechariah calls this character the branch right right and so that's um not a new title, not a new name. Isaiah and Jeremiah both mentioned the branch as well. The the branch from the stump of Jesse, you know, the Davidic line. But if you go back before the exile, the prophets, when they talk about the branch, when they talk about the Messiah who is to come, or when Isaiah talks about the suffering servant, um, it's not really clear that they're not just talking about a bunch of different people that they may be talking about, uh, Isaiah might be talking about Hezekiah. You know, Jeremiah could be talking about someone else, some immediate, you know, near future yeah. figure. And, and oftentimes we would assume that that's exactly what contemporaries 
understood them to be saying, because it seemed as if uh, one prophet is talking about a guy who's going to uh, rebuild the temple and he's going to do these kingly things. Another prophet is talking about a guy who seems like he's going to do sacrificial work, which is priestly. And so you could be forgiven for expecting, you know, several different deliverers at, at different time. But then after the exile, in these prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, suddenly we're seeing what used to be very diverse being combined uh, under one roof, as it were, in, in the figure of one person. And I feel like in Zechariah 6, there's been hints before, but, but here we're really getting it, you know, rubbed in our, our faces a little bit. Like, like you are crowning a priest and, and specifically saying in the future, the branch will come, the Messiah, and a priest will sit on his throne. So um, the office of priest and the office of king suddenly being occupied by the same person. And it's very jarring, too, in this instance, right? Because Zerubbabel is the king. Or the so he, governor. He's like the he governor. Should be the king. Yeah, he's yeah. The, the kingly figure. So you would expect, you know, him to be here rather than Joshua, perhaps. Right. But it's the high priest that's getting a crown. And it's it is just a strange image. Frankly, I hadn't really thought about this image very much before the sermon series. So it's been it's been a cool way to think about how this foreshadows Jesus. Right. And, and that's the point that what's happening is there's a picture of Jesus that the prophets are putting together, a kind of mosaic. And the pieces have been in play for a while. And now we're kind of seeing the picture that's being made and things are coming into greater focus. And this is why Zechariah is going to be cited so often in the New Testament, because prophecy is cited first and foremost because of its fulfillment, because it confirms that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one we were waiting for. And so the prophetic task is to essentially uh, paint the picture of God to come, you know, Jesus coming to be with us. And so we're seeing that develop more clearly in the post-exilic prophets. What's neat about that, though, is we still don't really have the full picture Right? I mean, you could totally read Zechariah and not get it completely. Like in hindsight, yes, it seems clear. But I understand why contemporaries would still see these things as very mysterious. But what's fascinating to me is the way that this idea of the priest and the king come to explain the work of Christ and in order to really get the full picture, we have to add one more office in there, which is the office of prophet. So are you familiar with the threefold office of Christ, the way we talk about that? Right. Yeah. I remember in, I think it was in seminary, again, reading Calvin was the really first exposure that I had to it. But essentially, he's trying to delineate, define everything that Christ accomplishes in his life. And he essentially does it by using these three categories, right? As Christ as prophet, Christ as, Christ as king, and Christ as the high priest. 
doing all of the things that those figures in the Old Testament did, but doing them in his own life, right? Right. If you think about that, it's really brilliant. So if someone asked you, uh, just sketch for me real quickly the work of Christ. (laughs) You know, I, I think most of us would probably say something about atonement. You know, we would say something about, uh, you know, you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins and really focus on the cross and, and rightly so. But if you were trying to be exhaustive and you really wanted to cover the, the things that Jesus does, you quickly realize there is more to his work than atonement. In fact, much more. And so what we have in this this threefold office way of describing Christ is a kind of summary that gives us a better handle on the scope of his work, that that Jesus fulfills the office of a prophet, he fulfills the office of a priest, he fulfills the office of a king. And if you think about what prophets do in the Old Testament, what priests do, what kings do, then you have a pretty good outline for seeing what it is that Jesus does. Not only that, but you also have a reminder of what we might call like the typological dimension. Because if I start thinking that Jesus's work consists in the work of a prophet, priest, and king, then I start looking at all of the prophets in the Old Testament, all of the priests and all of the kings, and I see in them types. I see in them little reflections or hints at Jesus to come so that all of those office holders in their various ways teach me something about the perfect priest and the perfect king, the perfect prophet. And so it is, it's simple, but the more you reflect on this threefold office, the more profound, I think, the understanding of Christ's work becomes. Maybe we can unpack each one a little bit. Yeah. So we mentioned that Calvin was one of the first to really articulate this, at least giving it this kind of a name, but the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism also nice and uh, concisely defines what each of these are. So I thought maybe we could just read through each one. Sure. Sure. So if we, uh, if we look at the Shorter Catechism at question 23, it starts a sequence of questions. So the, the answer in 23 is one of those answers. If you memorize it, you now have an outline for the next five questions. But the question is, what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? And the answer is, Christ is our Redeemer, executed the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. So when I read something like that in the catechism, I automatically know you just gave me a list of five things. The next five questions you're going to ask are going to be about each of those five yeah. things. So we'll we'll save humiliation and exaltation for another time, although sure. that's super rich. Let's just look at, at the way that the catechism describes how Jesus executes the offices. So you want to take question 24? Yeah. So how how doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? Answer, Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us 
by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. So the verb there, I think the relevant verb is reveal, right? He's revealing by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. I think this connects directly back to Hebrews 1. Mm-hmm. You know, where, Which you read on Sunday. <laughs> exactly. Jesus is introduced by the author of Hebrews by first referring to God's revelation of himself through the prophets. And all that, that diversity of revelation sees its, its highest expression in Christ. So it's clear that the author of Hebrews, right from the outset, sees Jesus as the uh, foremost kind of apotheosis of prophetic office. And I love the simplicity of this answer that, that Jesus is a prophet because he reveals to us the will of God for our salvation. And that's what the prophets did. The prophets throughout the Old Testament were, were speaking the will of God. You know, they were giving the word of the Lord, and it had to do with his covenant, which was all about salvation. And so if that's what the prophets were doing, we can easily see why Jesus is the foremost of all the prophets. Because what was his ministry if not revealing the Father to us? They mention by his word and spirit— it's interesting, too, though, that elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus is simply called the Word. You know, so John calls him the Word. We talked about this in former episodes. So he's a prophet in the sense that he is the Word of God to to us as well. And of course, that comes through in his teachings and later in, in his spirit. But there's something about his very existence, his life to us, which is prophetic because it's God's Word. That's a great point. So this gets ahead a little bit, but when we talk about him as a priest, he's a priest who sacrifices himself, right? So he makes the sacrifice and he is the sacrifice. If you understand that and then take it back to the office of a prophet, the prophet reveals God, but Jesus reveals God and at the same time is the revelation of God. So he's not just kind of a super prophet, but he is the perfect embodiment of prophecy in a way that no one could surpass because he himself is the one who is being revealed. Yeah. So again, the Old Testament prophets are types and he is the the real, the shadow, or not, not the shadow. He's the substance, the actual prophet, the ultimate. Precisely, precisely. So in question 25, we have the answer of... Uh, how doth Christ execute the office of a priest? So Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. So if you were going to diagram that sentence, you have two main points and then one of them has two subpoints. When we saw the office of a prophet, there was one action and it was revealing. But here we have offering up of himself. So sacrificing is one of the things he does. And then the second one is making continual intercession. So a priest sacrifices and a priest makes intercession. Now, Jesus's sacrifice 
does things no other sacrifice can. And that's what the confession or the catechism means when it says to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. So this sacrifice is made once. He offers himself up once. And that one sacrifice satisfies divine justice. That's why there's no need for a further sacrifice. That one sacrifice reconciles us to God. That's why when we talk about salvation, we often talk about our salvation as if it was done, accomplished fully at the cross, that the actual sacrifice did it all, even though it was 2,000 years later that you and I came to faith. This is the reason why, because that sacrifice reconciled us to God. It did, didn't just make it possible that we could reconcile ourselves to God. It reconciled us to God. That's what priests do. Jesus does it in a way that no other priest could. That's, again, the author of Hebrews makes this point. Jesus's priesthood is preeminent. So we have the greatest prophets, whoever was, and the greatest priest, whoever was. And then if you'll take question 26, Cameron. Yep. So how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. I think what's significant here is we talk a lot about the kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom and a focus on the kingdom of God and that sort of thing. And this actually gives you some insight because the king is the ruler and founder of the kingdom. And the three things listed here are what our king does. And they have an interesting focus. At first, it's not subduing enemies. It starts with subduing us. That yeah. He subdues us to himself. Yeah, what does that mean? I think every king must establish his own reign his own people. And in human kingdoms, you often see a king come to the throne and it's necessary for him to assert his authority, to demonstrate that he intends to rule and to reign. And so by analogy, we can understand an aspect of Christ's work, which is to bring us under his authority, to to rule and reign over us. So subduing us to himself is a way of talking about our salvation, but it it illuminates a different aspect of it. So we've talked about reconciling us to God, but now Christ as our king and we as his uh, fellow heirs, his co-regents, are being brought under his authority and kind of under his rule and reign. We're being made like him. And the rest of his kingdom action emanates from there. So ruling and defending us follows from that. So he subdues us. He makes us his people. But then he does what a good king does. Like he rules, he reigns, and he protects those who are his. Like a shepherd who protects his flock. And then finally, we get that outward focus, which is the restraining and conquering of his and our enemies, and in that order. So we see 
we become his people. He rules over us and defends us. And you might think of that as discipline. You know, he, he administers his kingdom well. He defends it against attack. And then ultimately, he does justice. He restrains evil, but then ultimately conquers evil. And so any time in prophecy or any time in scripture in general where we see uh, God fighting and conquering, the, the idea of the warrior, all of that connects to the kingship of Jesus. And again, it's another aspect of who he is. There's no conflict between the priest and the king. They go together. Do you think in the Gospels, where we see Jesus casting out demons all over the place, do you think that's part of what's going on? Is he's he's establishing himself as king and casting out his enemies? Well, if you think about the the end of Matthew, right? Matthew 28 with the Great Commission, when we look at the Great Commission, oftentimes we we focus on sort of the the second half, the commissioning, mm-hmm. and not the basis for that commissioning. Because what Jesus says to kind of preface his command to go and make disciples is all authority is given to me. So he has established his authority, his rule and reign, his kingdom is already, but not yet, Mm -hmm. but it is already established. And based on that authority, that kingship, he commissions us to go out. And so, yes, you do see in the Gospels an authority narrative where Jesus is asserting his authority as king and being recognized as such. And that's an important aspect of who he is. I had a professor at seminary, George Hunsinger. He once suggested, kind of offhand, frankly, that the Spirit's work is applying the work of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. So the Spirit actually helps us participate in those same kinds of functions, which I thought was really interesting. And he, like I said, it was offhand. He didn't explain it very much, but I was thinking maybe, maybe it's true. Maybe it's, maybe it's accurate that so as prophets, the church, we proclaim the word of God. And that seems true enough. Um, as priests, we intercede sort of for the world, you know, on behalf of, on behalf of the world to God. And indeed give up our lives as sacrifices as christ did and then as as kings well we're not kings exactly but yet revelation talks about us ruling with god under under god so it's it was just kind of an interesting thought experiment that he put out there but i've i've kind of wondered how our lives as disciples of christ are also shaped by those three offices do you have any thoughts about that yeah i think it's a good insight to kind of look at the life of Jesus is a pattern for the life of discipleship, right? That we talk about this a lot when we talk about suffering, that we should never be surprised by our own suffering because we follow a suffering Savior. And in our suffering, we experience a participation in his sufferings. And I think it's also true that 
when it comes to the the duties and responsibilities of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, we see in ourselves aspects of fulfillment of those things. As as we seek to follow Christ, we reveal God. You know, as we seek to follow Him, we intercede and we sacrifice, as we've been talking about. And we also fight and we conquer, Lord willing, as well. And so we do kingly things as well. There's a book that I highly recommend to anyone who's interested in, especially the work of the Holy Spirit as it relates to salvation. It's John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And what I appreciate about that book is it brings into focus the Trinitarian nature of salvation so that we can see the Father choosing us in him before the foundation of the world. So election as a, as a sort of uh, fatherly work. We see the Son dying for us and doing that work of atonement. So he's accomplishing the redemption on behalf of those whom God loved before the foundation of the world. And then in our lifetimes, in our personal history, the Spirit is applying that work to us. And so we see in, in our salvation a triune character. And we also recognize that every, every instance of a person coming to faith is miraculous. It's, it's a work of the Holy Spirit and would not be possible otherwise. So that um, oftentimes... We think of, you know, people talk about the Holy Spirit as if the Holy Spirit is is like emotion or something, that you have the Spirit because you're excited. Whereas I would say biblically, the, the Spirit's work is much more fundamental than that. It's nothing to do with your feelings and everything to do with your quickening, with your life in Christ. If it's true that the Spirit applies the work of the cross to us in history, then obviously in, in sanctification, it makes perfect sense that, that part of that application is helping us be little prophets and, and little priests and little kings. That's all the time we have for the commentary this week. Thanks as always to Cameron and thanks to you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. And in the meantime, please share the commentary with your friends online or through word of mouth. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.